0: Please open your Bibles to Psalm 19. The title says, Equip Me of Hidden Faults 2, but that's incorrect. It's number 3. And we're in a series of sermons studying secret sin. Probably the first time in your life you've ever had any sermon on secret sins, but I'm sure it's the first time you've been in a church where there have been multiple sermons given to this, and there's a very, very... uh, Uh, obvious reason why we would all run from this if we could, namely looking at our public sin is bad enough but looking at secret sin is very discouraging Uh, until we're able to look at it in confidence that Jesus did come to save sinners and that he didn't just come to save us from condemnation when we die and stand before the judgment seat but that he came to save us from indwelling and besetting and the bondage of sin in this life. And so this morning as we read the text, Psalm 19, I encourage you to realize that uh, it's it's the opposite of the way we'd normally think. But when we do go to Scripture, and we allow it to show us the secrets of our hearts, and we do that in faith, believing that God loves us, and that it is His will that we be strengthened by His Holy Spirit through the Word, through the preaching of the Word, and that we can give our secrets to Him, trusting Him to love us and to lead us through these secret sins, then it's not a discouragement, but it's an encouragement. So let's hear the Word of God. I'm going to read all of Psalm 19, but we're focusing particularly on the last couple of verses, verses 12 through 14. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true, Psalm 19, 1 to 14, for the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Um, I'm going to get this wrong. Is it Mars? It's Mars. There we go. I got it right. Without Rita here to tell me. But are you all tracking Mars right now? Closer than it's been in what? 54,000 years or something like that? The brightest star in the sky? Even The only one that gives it competition, it's not a star I know, but is the moon. And uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor their words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, as we've studied this, we've seen that you can break it into basically three parts. First, it speaks of the revelation of God in nature. And the principal way we looked at that is by looking at how uh, the sky, the stars, the majesty of the universe, the unbelievable distances. And, uh, you know, you only, have, you only really have two choices. Either uh, you worship nature or you worship God. But you have to worship. When you see the expanse and you see the majesty... And I remember uh, an older member of our church who died this last year, Rita Cuffey, saying that uh, she wanted to know God and she went to uh, the Catholic Church and grew up there and she could not find God there. She went to the Episcopal Church and she wasn't taught about God there. So then she decided she would take philosophy. And she, I forget which philosopher, she said there was only one philosopher that in in a, a very small way taught me something about God, but she said, then I decided to study astronomy because I figured that in astronomy I would I would get to know God. Well, thank God that later in her life he led her to the Word, to the Bible, and to Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, it's natural. We understand when she says she studied astronomy to learn about God. And so the first section, verses 1 to 6, teach us about How much of God is revealed in nature? And there is much that we learn there. Then verses 7 to 11 talked about God revealing himself not just through nature, but also through the book of Scripture. And so we refer to nature as general revelation. It it falls on the just and the unjust. We refer to Scripture as special revelation. And this is the very word of God. And again, uh, you can break uh, all men into two groups the group that believes that this, the very words of it, are God's word, and those who deny that this is God's word. Now, there are many who want to say this is a good book. There are many who even want to talk about this being God's book. There are many who would even say that some things in this are inspired. There are many who will go a long way down the road of showing a pious attitude towards the Bible, but who will, when it comes right down to it, not accept the fact that these words are God's words. And if you think I'm being nitpicky when I say words, I'm going to tell you that that's the whole battle. Either the very words are inspired or nothing is inspired. And the reason is that the minute you say some words are inspired and others aren't, you become the judge of which is which. And so what it really means is that the Bible becomes the tool that you use to implement your idols. And, you know, it's if you've been listening to the debate over homosexual marriage in the last couple of months, you've heard people who uh, purport to be Christians, A, purport to be Christian pastors, B. And you've heard them on the radio and you've heard them say how you know uh, rigid fundamentalists who still believe what 2,000 years of Christians have said about certain things uh, really ought to watch out because they're bibliolaters. Have you heard that? In other words, we have put the Bible in the place of God and we worship the Bible instead of God. And let me just say, that's a false uh, antithesis. God does not fight with the Bible. He can't. How does God fight with His own Word? You can't. Either the Bible is the Word of God and it's in perfect conformity and so if there's a place in the Bible that you find that you're not entirely comfortable with, you stop and think, aha, there is God. Or... You go to the Bible, and when you hit something you're not comfortable with, you think, there is man. But I hope you know yourself well enough to know that it's precisely at the point where the Bible hammers you that almost certainly you are meeting God. Because otherwise, your world is pathetically small. You know? When I find myself being very certain of my own opinions, I'm a pretty disgusting person. But when I find myself clinging desperately to the very point of Scripture that all the world shouts down, I know that I'm clinging to God. And I hope you have that kind of confidence in the Word of God. Um, My father was not enamored with the tendency among evangelicals to want to use the word inerrancy. He didn't really like that word. Now you might get all uptight about that and think, well, what in the world was his problem? Especially because in our church we actually have that word in our in our in our statement of faith and it's a word that we want you to agree with. But let me tell you something, the reason he didn't like it is because he was surrounded by people who claimed to be Christians who would even say they believed in the errancy of Scripture, and yet time after time after time after time, when the Bible cut them where they, and, and they hurt, they would rebel against it and come up with a very sophisticated explanation as to why that particular text didn't apply in their own particular lives or their children's lives. And so Dad was... He hated hypocrisy and he thought, you know, if that's what inerrancy means, that we all pay our lip service to the authority of Scripture and to its being trustworthy and and then we go about and do what we wanted to do in the first place and feel no compunction of conscience, then I don't want to hear about the word inerrancy. But you know, when my father saw sin in the lives of his children or fear, no one was more quick to speak the Word of God into our lives. And so, as I've told you before, each one of us had a particular verse. I was meeting with somebody in our church this last week and I recognized myself when I was that person's age in them. And so I quoted the scripture to them that my father quoted to me when I was their age and the scripture was double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Another one that was one of my father's favorites for children growing up, he thought it had something important to teach us, was the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And guess what? We had a very happy home. There was a lot of laughter, many jokes, many practical jokes, much touching, much love, much intimacy. And my father would say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? As a matter of fact, I would say that if you think that that would be a negative home to grow up in, I would say that it's only in such a home that has that clearly in their mind that there can begin to be real humor. Because a home where that's the foundation of our view of man and woman is a home that sees the huge gap between what we are and what God made us to be and can allow it to be humorous. Whereas a humanist, nothing is funny, it can't be funny. And it can't be funny because, I mean, I shouldn't admit this, but all of you, not all of you, but many of you have told me that there's an author um, that you read. Well, I shouldn't say many of you. Actually, if I were truthful, I should say there's one man (laughs) in this church who I know has been reading this man for years. And I've always looked at it and kind of thought that's weird. So I picked up a book. I don't know the name of the book, and I don't know the name of the author. But many, many of you have read them, I'm sure. And the particular—I really don't know the name of the author or the book. I really don't. But I can tell you, if you go into Barnes and Noble right now, it's it's or or Borders, it's at the front, and there are walls of them in paperback. Okay. Um, Anyhow. Do you know what it is? No, you don't know, but you'll know in a second. Um, I've read only about the first hundred pages, but it's fascinating that a lot of the first hundred pages is the author, in a very sophisticated way, boring into the mind of communists in the early 1980s in Russia. Now, do you know what book it is? Yeah, okay, it's Clancy, that's right. Huh? Well, somebody speaks so I can hear him. I don't know the name of it, but that's the book, OK? And if you read the book, and I so far, I wouldn't have any hesitation in telling you to, but who knows what I'm going to get into is you read the book, the fascinating thing is, the absolute st- sterility, the complete boredom, the complete monotony, the complete lifelessness of people in communism. And what is communism? Communism is exactly, uh, it's just just like capitalism really. I mean, don't argue with me if you're an economist. But both of them are completely materialists. I mean, that's what it is. It's complete materialism. And materialism is such a tiny and small and stingy view of life. You know what I mean? I mean, when you've gotten that car, what did it do for you, eh? You know, when, when the communist leader is able to drive down the center lane without ever hitting traffic, what did it do for him? I think it made life boring. You know, a lot of my life consists of joy in being able to avoid traffic by making smart moves. And think, all those joys are gone for the communist that drives down the center lane and never has to slow down. Well, I'm really serious about this. When your life is absolutely predictable, all right, whether it's a life of nothing or a life of, of 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 tremendous wealth, it is a very boring life. Materialism is very boring. The view that man is the measure of all things is a very small view. Imagine thinking that. Imagine living in a society where everybody has that as their greatest hope, that... that that the measure of all things will slowly become better and that's all we have to hope for. Imagine the beginning of the 20th century when the ideological tagline that people used even in our country was every day in every way the world is getting better and better. And that's a world that has no hope in the blood of Christ. That's a world that has no ability to see what Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden in perfect intimacy with God. Do you understand that? And so when we talk about Scripture revealing things to us. Think of the majesty of the Revelation Scripture is. Think of how it explodes us. And yes, half of it is we are fallen. And if you think that that's a cosmic negative bummer thing and that uh, life will be better if you don't know that, then you haven't begun to discover the grace of God. Because the grace of God and the fall of man are so intricately bound together you can't know one without the other. And so here we have this text and it starts with Revelation. And there is much that can be learned there in nature and then it moves into Scripture and there's much that can be learned there. But you and I both know, if you know Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, that there is yet another knowledge that you must have. And that's the knowledge of yourself that is given to you by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we cannot hypothetically and intellectually and objectively... Now, be careful how I use that word, be Christians. In other words, Christianity cannot be something that we experience outside of ourselves through an intellectual process and affirmation. Do you get that? Christianity... And understand what I mean when I say this is existential. Christianity must, must be the Lord is my shepherd. Not our shepherd. It's true, He is our shepherd. But He must be my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green grass. He leadeth me beside. He restoreth my soul. So now... Here we see worship. It starts with nature and the majesty of God. It moves into Scripture. And we learn about the fall of man and woman. We learn about the redemption of Jesus Christ. And then we move again. And that's these final verses. And there we move into knowledge of ourselves. All religion consists of knowing God and knowing yourself. And if you don't know yourself, then you do not know God. It is impossible to know God without having God shine the spotlight on yourself. Okay, So here we move into knowing ourselves. Now, this brings us immediately to one central fact about ourselves. And I already said it earlier. And that fact is, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, let me just ask you, Um, is this what God has shown you about yourself? Is this what is your normal understanding as you grow in holiness as a Christian? You grow in the knowledge of your heart being deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. If we have true self-knowledge, that true self-knowledge will always lead... This is one line that's lateral that we absolutely know where that line heads. And it is heading towards the point of knowing more and more of our own sin. It is impossible to grow as a Christian and to have the line of our Christian lives lead to knowing more and more and more of how we're not the sinners we thought we were. And that's much of what psychology does. I'm not saying there aren't purposes to psychology that are good. There are, definitely. But Alan Bloom in the closing of the American mind and talking about divorce and how when couples decide they don't want to be together anymore, they send their kids to get counseled by psychologists. Okay, And then he says this, Quote, Psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. Okay? And he was... (laughs) An honest pagan at University of Chicago taught philosophy and was uh, a self-affirming homosexual. And he says, psychology, psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. And so you have the choice. You can either study the normal worldview in the Western world of what it is to have mental health, namely to be self-affirming in whatever it is that you thought you had to be guilty about and be ashamed of, or you can come under the Word of God and grow in your knowledge of your own sinfulness. And that is the Christian life. And how do I know that? Well, I know that because the Bible tells us what about the Apostle Paul. And all of you, uh, all of you know that the Apostle Paul was a tremendous spiritual leader. I mean, we read earlier, you read that list is on the one hand, on the other hand, back and forth. Well, that was a personal list. That described his life. This is what he gave to the Lord as his sacrifice of his life. He really did present his body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which was his reasonable service. And yet we see the Apostle Paul, as he goes on in his life, his testimony about himself All right, is what? That's right, I hear it. He said about himself that I am, what? The chief of sinners. So when somebody grows in their knowledge of their heart, in the freedom of Jesus Christ, and I say freedom because in Christ you're able to admit what you are. You don't have to lie about it. You don't have to pay somebody to be your friend that you can talk your way out of it. But you can admit who you are. Christianity is the freedom to be a sinner. Alright, as we grow, these sins are revealed. And what we see on the part of the godly is that the godly desire for the, this revelation. Okay? In Psalm 139, David writes David, the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. David writes this. He says, Search me, O God. And what? Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And here in our own text, verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says about himself, Wretched man that I am, Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then the answer, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we grow in self-knowledge, we grow in our awareness of our sin. We understand that that growth can only come from God, from the work of His Holy Spirit. Now it is true that wives are pretty good at it. Wives do a good job of showing us our sin. Uh, One of the chief gifts that a married person has that a single person often doesn't have is someone who lives next to them (laughs) who is, uh, uh, I don't know, David, what would you say? Adept at uh, the scalpel. That's good. Adept with the scalpel. Yes. Yes. Yes, It's funny, it's the single people who are laughing. <laughs> you, Lucas. <laughs> um, it is a good gift to have someone. And uh, I think another thing, I think that as our children grow, we as parents ought to encourage them to come to us, not at the moment that they're disagreeing with us, but afterwards, and to point out our sin to us. Um, this morning I was teaching a Sunday school class of young Young kids, and I told them that the next time their father tells a joke that uses the name of God, they should privately afterwards take him aside and tell him that that's taking the name of God God in vain. Um, And I, I didn't worry about telling them to do that to their father as long as they do it privately and with respect. So dads, if you get taken to task, I told them to do it, but make sure it's privately and with respect. Well, it is true that our children... That our wives and our husbands, professors, teachers, foremen, judges, police officers, everybody does have a role in showing us ourselves and our sin. But really all true self-knowledge does come from the Holy Spirit. And really knowing the depth of who we are can only come from the Holy Spirit because The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? David says here, who can discern his own heart? So it comes from God. And as we grow in this knowledge of ourselves, of our sin, this knowledge that God gives us through His Spirit, then what happens? We always are driven to the exposure of our hidden faults and our secret sins. Now, when we talk about hidden and secret sins, what do we mean by this? Well, we certainly don't mean that it's hidden from God, right? Because nothing is hidden from God. It's one of the marks of a wicked person that that person thinks that they can uh, snooker God. And uh, the Bible tells us in many different places that we can't snooker God. In the children's catechism that our little ones learn, one of their answers is nothing can be hidden from God. All right. Isaiah 29.15 Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place and they say, Who sees us or who knows us? Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 10 The wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Skipping down, he sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. Skipping down, he says to himself, verse 11, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, Jeremiah twenty-three, twenty-four: Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Proverbs 5.21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Psalm 44, 20 and 21, If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of our heart. Now you might wonder why I'm just reading Scripture, but it's because I want you to know it's impossible to hide from God. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, For God will bring. Okay, I'm going to change it. For God will bring some acts to judgment, some things that are hidden, whether they are good or evil. For God will bring most things to judgment, most things that are hidden, whether they are good or evil. For God will bring what? Every. And every really is even more specific, I think, than all. I mean, that's nitpicking. But every is more intense. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is for good or evil. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Now, that gets down to it, doesn't it? Where it's not just the things that we do, but it's the motives. And have you ever done anything where you felt your motives were pure? I don't think I have. Every one of those motives will come into the open. Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So in other words, if we think that we can choose another God, we're reminded here that this God who will bring everything into the open, it is this God that we have to do with. In other words, even if we don't like that God and claim another God, it is that God we will meet at the judgment seat. It's not another God who's blind, another guy who's deaf, another, another God who's hidden. But it's that God, that very God. We cannot hide from God. Nothing is hidden from God, but it can be hidden from us. And there are times that sins are uh, hidden from us because we're simply ignorant. Now, I last week I believe mentioned one particular sin that the Bible speaks of as being due to ignorance and therefore uh, that God God was asked to treat it more lightly. Do you remember what it was? Do you remember the Apostle Paul talking about his persecution of the church? And what he says is that he acted ignorantly. Alright? And we see that um, in 1 Timothy 1, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly, What? a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Remember another time? You remember when our Lord was on the cross and He said, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. And so ignorance can lead us to committing sins and they can be hidden from us because we are ignorant. Um, but sometimes sins are not hidden from us because we're ignorant, but because we're disguising them. And they're secret because of disguise. And I mentioned last week uh, gossip that's given in the guise of small group prayer requests. Oh, brothers, you know, pray for Joe Blow um, because, uh, you know, he's really a turkey. And I, I really don't like him, and he just really makes me wretch. Well, we don't quite say it like that; it's more spiritualized. He seems to have issues, Uh, or I can't think of one right now. So I'll move on. All right. Second, um, sometimes we can disguise them as. A principal, for instance, a father who's lazy and who uh, tells his wife to bring him a beer uh, because he's the head of the home. Um, So we can disguise them uh, through claiming that they're virtues. We disguise them simply by keeping them from the public eye. Uh, Sedgwick compares it to a chimney fire that isn't visible, but it's in the chimney and it's going and it's hot. All right? All right. Uh, We can disguise them by keeping them from any human eye and even uh, not admitting to ourselves what we have done. Think of David committing adultery and then murder. Um, And there are many different ways of disguising our sin. But the Bible says in 1 John 1.7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. And so what we see is that darkness is always used in Scripture for evil and wickedness and the evil one, Satan. And light is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And bondage comes from darkness and freedom comes from light. Fellowship is freedom. We have fellowship with one another. You know, honestly, one of the joys of uh, summer vacation is, is visiting other churches. And one of the joys of visiting other churches, and sometimes there are parts of visiting them that aren't entirely joyful, but one of the joys is realizing again and again how you go anywhere in the world and you have immediate fellowship with other Christians. Now, if you stop to think about what that fellowship is and you try to put a name to it, you know what that fellowship is? Almost always that fellowship is realizing that you're with someone who has been broken by God And is not pretentious, is not trying to put the move on you psychologically, intimidating you and trying to make you feel like you're nothing. But you're relating to somebody who also is nothing, but who loves Jesus. And it's amazing when you get done trying to maintain your own position and your own ego, the sweet, sweet fellowship that there is. You can go anywhere. Immediately you have friends. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to worry about them getting a position against you. Um, they love you, and they love you because they've been broken by God, and they've been accepted by the Holy Spirit, and day by day they're being sanctified. And so you know they're chilled out. It doesn't mean they're chilled out about sin, but they're certainly chilled out about trying to find a place to stand against you, and to, and to make you little. We have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. But what of the person who avoids the light? Um, Spurgeon, on this sermon, I mean on this text, in a sermon, he says this. He says, beware of committing acts which it will be necessary to conceal. And then he quotes a poem by Hood called The Dream of Eugene Aram." He says, this is a most remarkable piece, illustrating the point that we are now dwelling. This man, Aram, had murdered a man and cast his body into the river. And the river was, quote, a sluggish water, black as ink. The the depth was so extreme. The next morning, this murderer got up and visited the place where he had committed his crime. And the poem says... And this murderer, he sought the black, accursed pool with a wild, misgiving eye. And he saw the dead in the riverbed, for the faithless stream was dry. And so the murderer covered the corpse with dry leaves, but then a mighty wind swept through the woods and left his secret bare before the sun. And the poem continues, quote, Then down I cast me on my face and first began to weep, for I knew my secret then was one that earth refused to keep. On land or sea, though it should be, 10,000 fathoms deep. And what a terrible thing to find that there is no place to hide. No place to hide our sin. And so we see that God in His mercy calls us to seek the revelation of our sin. To seek... uh, it to be exposed, it to be revealed, to seek self-knowledge, to seek to understand. Now, let me ask this question. If you were just to ask it in, in, a, in a normal human way without going to Scripture for a direct answer, you were to ask the question, why should we desire to see our secret sins exposed? What's in it for us? Uh, what's the motivation? And I want to list a few. The first motivation for us that we ought to desire to have our secret sins cleansed, revealed and cleansed, is that secret sins become what? Inevitably. What do they become? Known. They become public sins. Now, stop and think of your secret sin. We all have them. Think think of your secret sin. Isn't it interesting how that secret sin, part of its life is constantly convincing you what? That it will stay secret. (laughs) Remember, Satan is the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he's speaking his native language. And so we all convince ourselves that we can keep it under wraps. You know, this is just my little lovey-dovey thing you know this is just my little pet and nobody knows i have a pet you know this is my little secret but let me ask you do they come out last night as i was doing my sermon i checked the news and guess what father geogan or however you pronounce his name in boston was killed in prison Now, do you know who he was? I don't know how to pronounce his name. I just read it. Do any of you know how to pronounce his name? G-H-E-O-G-A-N. Gagan. Gagan. Thank you. Father Gagan was killed in prison. Now, who's Father Gagan? Well, Father Gagan is really the man that it all started with. He's the man that it ended up that he had molested, I think it was 100 Little boys, he'd go over and tuck them in at night and pray over them and molest them. They ended up settling, I forget how many millions of dollars with the victims. But most of the victims could never go to court because the statute of limitations had run out for this man. Do you think that that man started thinking that one day his name would be known all over the world? Don't you think that Satan told him that he could do what he wanted under the bedclothes at night as he was praying for the little boy? Now, we all are repulsed by this. And so last night, it's international news that some criminal killed him. But there's no confusion. No one wonders why it happened. Not one word of uh, the news source explaining that there had been a fight in the lunchroom prior. Do you know why I'm laughing? We all know why he was killed. And here is a man who gave his life to secrecy. And we're all repulsed by him and we think, well, that's not me. Right? So what is your secret sin? Is it bitterness and hatred for somebody? Do you know what our Lord said about that? He said that that's murder. But no, it's secret. What if it's lust? Well, I'm not committing adultery. I'm just thinking about it. What did our Lord say? He said the man that looks on a woman with lust in his eye has committed adultery. Now, again, either you look at Scripture and you say, thank God that somebody speaks truth. Or you look at your video screen and you march on, convinced that nobody can see your computer screen, that nobody can see your motives as you open the email. But you know what that email likely contains. But Satan's right there and he says, nobody will know. And you certainly don't have to tell anyone. You certainly don't have to go into some small group where other people are going to be telling you. And that's the nature of secret sin. It always denies that it will be found out. It always has Satan right there telling you that this will just be your your little secret. And guess what? It will come out. Now we have God's word for the fact that it will come out at the judgment seat. But we can make our peace with that. You think, that's okay. If I can have it during my life and he has it at the judgment seat, that's a good bargain. And so we nurture it and we love it. And it's our secret sin. But the truth is, secret sins come out in this life. Now, if I keep going on this, it's going to get even more uncomfortable. And it is Sunday morning and you're all in your Sunday best. So, maybe I should just sort of chill out on this one and and let it go by, you know? Want to vote? Let's talk about divorce for a second. Did divorces just spring out of the ground unbidden? They got divorced. I just don't know what happened. They seem to be the perfect couple. Such a nice family. And then you find out that when the father traveled on his business trips, that he had lunch with a woman alone. And it happened to be the woman that was always sent on that assignment, that that account with him. And you found out that uh, his wife didn't know he was always traveling with a woman. But guess what? Over a period of time, that intimacy grew and grew and grew. He thought, shoot, we're both business people, you know. And everybody knows that in the real world today, you need to travel with women, and, and it's natural to have lunch with her, and it's natural to talk about her husband and my wife. Well, no, it's not natural to do. I guess I shouldn't really do that. But as to the lunch part, I mean, that's almost required. And so these little secrets go on and on. Phone calls. Secret phone calls. Secret letters. Secret notes. Secret looks. Huh? How about that one? Any of you engaging in secret looks? somebody in your class, somebody you teach, somebody that you work with. And if those looks could speak, they speak of lust and love and intimacy, emotional intimacy. And so if you look back into the past of divorce and you look back into the past of adultery and you look back into the past of the the betrayal of Judas, what you'll find is that his hand is in the money bag of the disciples, eh? Funny thing. And then he betrays Jesus for silver. That was a little thing. The money bag wouldn't miss it. A lot of rich women that were supporting Jesus and his disciples, he needed a little extra dough. Maybe his wife had a sickness and he needed a doctor. Who knows? Nobody would miss it. And then guess what? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says this: James 1:15, "When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death." James 1, verse 15. Now, I'm going to stop at this point, but I want to speak just a moment to those of you whose conscience has been corrupted by secret sin. You have a sin that you're nurturing in your heart, and you realize that it could come into the open, or maybe it is on the verge of coming into the open. And I want to say to you that one of the promises of Scripture that should be most precious to you is this. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brethren, and anytime the Bible says brethren, you can just add a cistern there also, <laughs> and not the cistern that you keep water in. But when it says men, it includes women, but it addresses us as a corporate body through our federal heads, men. But therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in what? Do you remember what it says? In full assurance. Full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, what the Bible says is that God has sent His Son into this world to clean dirty consciences. Not just to save us at the judgment seat, but to apply to us the blood of Christ today. Today, when we flee to Him in repentance, asking Him to cleanse our secret sins, that God sent His Son Jesus to us so that today we can have a clean conscience. And it's my privilege as a preacher of the Word to hold out to you God's gift of a clean conscience. Now, just for a second, stop and think about how many in this world have no hope of a clean conscience. Think of how many in this world have had the equivalent of an iron turned up to the highest setting and taken and smashed into their conscience in such a way that it's seared flesh, like someone who has had terrible burns and their flesh has lost any resilience. Sensitivity or hypersensitivity, but think now of the conscience and iron searing it. Think of the terrible loss so many people have of the ability of seeing their secret sins and judging them as God judges them. And that's a terrible fate. But the Bible says that the blood of Jesus, that the veil of his flesh, that in other words, that his death Is so that we can have our consciences restored. Now, think of your conscience. This secret thing that's a gift of God. This secret thing that He places in both the pagans and the righteous. Everyone, in all places, God has given a conscience. Think of that conscience you have. Is that conscience muddied? Is it seared? Is it scar tissue? The Bible says that when we cling to Jesus and we ask him to forgive us, when we cling to the cross, the Bible says that that conscience will become, and if you've ever had a baby, I think you might be like me, the favorite thing to do is to take your hand up beneath the shirt on their back, right at the small of the back, and feel the softness. There's no softer thing in the world than the small of a newborn baby's back, the little fuzz and just the tender skin of a little baby. Okay? And the Bible says that God will renew the seared conscience, that He will make it fresh. And, and I think it's like a baby's back completely soft. So I encourage you this morning, in fact, I hold out to you from Scripture, the gift of God of a clean conscience. Don't run from knowledge of your conscience. Your conscience is given to you by God so that you will know yourself. And so embrace it, love it, cultivate it, and then realize you've seared it. Your life of sin and especially secret sin has just reduced and reduced and reduced that conscience so that it's barely alive and certainly not active and vigorous and certainly not educated. But the Bible says that one of the gifts God gives Christians when we place our trust in Jesus is a renewed conscience. And guess what? A husband that has a renewed conscience, the next time his wife comes to him and confronts him with his sin, instead of just exploding and thinking that uh, male power will, will shut her up, his conscience has been renewed and he listens to his wife. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word and for the conviction of sin that it brings me. Father, I plead with You make this the prayer of each person here Father help us not to flee